Welcome back to a new TechBomb podcast episode. In this one, I speak with Nigel Stevens, the founder and CEO of Organic Growth Marketing. Organic Growth Marketing is an agency that helps companies scale their organic growth efforts. He was also the former head of SEO and growth and community evangelist at BigCommerce. In fact, you can still find blog articles on the BigCommerce blog from Nigel. He's been one of my long-standing friends who I have regular conversations with and discuss SEO matters and exchange notes. In this episode, Nigel and I speak about the idea and concept of SEO forecasting, what it means to have good versus bad SEO data, and how to help and manage the expectations of companies when consulting. Make sure you listen to the end, give me a thumbs up and or a like, and make sure to subscribe to the TechBound Podcast YouTube channel. Enjoy. Three, two, one. Nigel, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks. Good to see you, Kevin. Yeah, likewise. Appreciate your time. Um, and I wanted to jump right into the topic. Uh, you know, I riffed off a lot in the past about uh, things you can and cannot prove with data, SEO forecasting, all these kinds of topics. Uh, so let me let me ask you straight away, like how should SEOs think about using data in general? Well, I think there's sort of a, an error of extremes on either side of the spectrum. Some people sort of say, look, like you just can't predict SEO. There's too many variables. There's nothing you can do. And then they get out of having to be accountable for a growth number like every other channel. But then the opposite fallacy is trying to predict like how much revenue and traffic can we get exactly during month one of our SEO efforts. So it's sort of about recognizing what data does and doesn't tell you. Like in my view, it's you can look at, okay, here's an opportunity for a space. We can more or less size that up within a certain degree of variance and then know that over a longer stretch of time, we'll get there. Like I've built models before where I sort of conservatively predicted that let's say we'd get to 50,000 in 10 months. And in the first three months we were slower, but then we got to 100,000 in eight months because I was being conservative in the long term. So I think it's sort of about thinking through sort of the time horizon and what it can and can't tell you. I'm all with you there. Um, I recently uh, wrote an article about SEO forecasting and had exactly that kind of point, right? Like it's basically like one of the bigger points that I wanted to make just about SEO in general. We have to be somewhere in the middle, right? Like some people completely use it as an excuse and say SEO is completely uncertain. Like anything that we do is just like a like a good guess. And other people are like, no, we can forecast everything exactly. And as ever so often, the truth is probably in the middle. So how do you approach these uh, conversations. You work with a lot of very big brands out there. I'm sure you routinely have that question. How can we, what can we expect from SEO? How do you answer that? Like, what are your first maybe three steps, even just in your head to come to, to a response to that? Yep. I'd say what I do is I size up the opportunity in terms of the traffic in the space. I get a feel for the baseline. So where are we at now? How much more room is there to grow? And then I need to understand the value of the traffic. And that's the most important thing. And then when I even say sizing up a space, I don't view all traffic as created equal. I'll usually say, okay, here's sort of like our core, core topic, and then sort of one step removed, and then two steps removed. So a lot of the time, you know, content people sometimes focus on that third bucket of what are all the fluffy topics sort of vaguely related to our core product that you can sort of come up with endless topics on. And if you have a traffic goal around that, it's not going to be the same as like, a third of that amount of traffic for your core uh, segment that you know converts better. So I'd say 
knowing those few things. And then the next step would be sort of in the vein of humility of not saying, here's the amount of growth we're going to get building a low and a medium and a high model. So you're sort of saying, hey, there's so many things that go into this. What's our bandwidth going to be? How fast can we build topical authority on this? Will you actually do what you're supposed to do? And then between all of that, you can sort of say, okay, even if worst case scenario, we should be able to at least get here, but there's a ceiling even higher. So uh, walk me through that. How do you size the potential for a company or the potential traffic? Yeah, so I, at some point there will be tools that render everything I'm saying obsolete and you'll click a button. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess for me, uh, that isn't the way it is now. So usually what I'll do is I'll get a feel like if I'm just looking at, let's say, for example, bicycle helmets, I'll look at, okay, for a few top websites in that vertical, what are aspects of the bicycle helmet vertical? And just looking at a combination of tools like Ahrefs and similar web, how much traffic are they getting? So then I'll say, okay, within the actual topic of bike helmets, where there's a transactional intent, let's say you sort of see that there's approximately 40 to 60,000 visits a month. And I would, I would probably even get more general because, you know, there's a decent amount of variability there. And then I would move on to the next one. So let's say I'm talking about the topic of biking and I want to drive anyone in my site who has questions about biking. Then I'll find some sites that are kind of a proxy for that. Like, biking blogs, maybe REI as a section on their blog that has something to do with bikes and sort of between those a few different sites and cross-checking similar web with something like Ahrefs, you can get an estimate of, okay, if I know that these sites get about this much, let's say maybe we think that opportunity is 10% more than that, then that's the, that's the opportunity side there. How do you determine how much of that opportunity can be translated into relevant traffic or even just straight up dollars? Yeah, so I think what I usually do is assume a conversion rate for each segment of traffic. And I base that in part on as much existing data. Like the easiest existing data is if you already have, you know, pages on your website, how do those convert? And then even some sort of a, a very general heuristic for higher intent keywords, if they don't have much organic data, I'll just take the homepage conversion rate and apply like 60% to that. Cause that's generally like a mix of branded traffic and people that know exactly what they're getting. So if you take, if you think that high intent traffic is going to be even like vaguely similar to that, you know, cut it in half, give it 60%. And then I'll do similar for every preceding segment. I'll see if they have something existing. And if not, I'll just make a conservative estimate. Like I think my go-to is for sort of tier three traffic, something like, you know, 0.3%. And for tier two traffic, 0.7%. And I'd love to be pleasantly surprised if that's underestimating it. And that's the point of a model. It's to account for different outcomes. Right. And I think that's really important. A lot of people miss that point of providing different types of scenarios. So um, how do you do that? How do you know how much under the neutral forecast a conservative scenario would be? And how uh, do you know how much over an optimistic scenario would be? Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's like some exact uh, magic answer to that question. So I usually look at it's sort of a, a combination of intuition and just taking the conservative estimate of everything. So like, I'm pretty sure that there's 50,000 visits in this segment, but let's just say there's 40. And I'm pretty sure it can convert at 3%, but let's just say 2%. So then when you stack 
like three conservative estimates on top of each other, you can say with a decent level of confidence, hey, if we can all agree that each one of these are conservative, then together this outcome would actually be kind of disappointing, but it's still, if you're okay with this outcome, then how does the medium outcome look? And then how does the aggressive outcome look? Yeah, that's one, one of the biggest challenges that I faced when working with different companies or in-house is managing expectations, right? Like every company obviously wants the most traffic possible, but then one of the most valuable things you can do is holding up reality and say, hey, even in the very best case, if all stars align, this is where we come out. That is a in my move in my in my experience. It's a gangster move to to get more resources. Also, right to say, hey, if you want to get there, this is what we have to do. But most SEOs just don't decrypt that clearly enough for people to make those investments. So the the another question I would have about that actually is how does that differ between different business models? You know, how would that be different for an e-commerce side versus a SaaS side, for example? Yeah, so I work a lot in B2B SaaS, which is far and away the most difficult thing to directly prove and attribute. And I think the answer to that question would be basically the shorter the sales cycle and the more direct response of a business model, the easier it is to justify because you're not having to make assumptions that move further away. Like I've worked with companies that are big and you know worth a billion dollars and they can basically not connect the dots between their on-site traffic and their backend really well. So you sort of have to settle for two things. One is micro conversions. And two is just a, a belief that if we increase our visibility across these topics and our leads and revenue trend in the right direction, that we are willing to invest in the correlation there, even if we can't prove it. And that's an extremely unsatisfactory answer, but I think the the resolution for that is relying more on micro conversions and filling those gaps as much as you can. And then also just accepting what you do and don't know. And then if you're in e-commerce, it's just a lot easier to directly attribute things, especially as attribution models are getting better. And with e-commerce, when often sales cycles are a little bit lower. So there's not, you know, nine months in between deciding if we're going to pull the trigger on this $5 million product, basically. Like, oh, I want this bike helmet. I'm going to buy it. Yeah, that's actually one of the most exciting things to me right now in the analytics space are the better attribution models. So HubSpot recently added uh, better attribution capabilities. Google Analytics 4 has some really cool attribution models. And it's it's relatively crystal clear that when you compare first touch versus last touch, for example, or even linear touch, uh, SEO has a, a much stronger foothold when you look at the first couple of uh, steps or the first couple of um, touches with the website. Um, but you mentioned this really interesting concept of micro conversions. Um, can you explain that, please? Yep. So I think especially for something like a B2B SaaS company, they say, okay, like we see a strong correlation between bringing in newsletter signups or ebook downloads or something. And then once we get all of those leads in, even if we can't properly attribute all the touch points along there. We know that once we get those micro conversions, when you average it out across everything, like these are worth so much to us or they convert at whatever rate. So then like I've worked with a B2B SaaS company where past a certain step, their attribution isn't great, but they know if we just keep driving these downloads, 
we make more money. So keep driving these downloads. And then when we report out on the goal conversions in Google Analytics that we have there, it's like, I wouldn't go to the board to say, here's proof of the money in our bank account. But as long as that correlation persists and we know that we keep driving those downloads and the sales team is able to convert those I wouldn't call that perfect data, but I would call that a lot better than saying, oh, since we can't measure everything down to the last dollar and cent and touch point, we should just drive traffic for anything and hope that it converts. That's a really interesting point that I actually didn't cover in my article. This idea of micro conversions, I think we call them internally soft conversions where you have the user make a an investment that eventually might lead to a bigger investment, like sign up for a newsletter and then signing up for the product. Um, that's a that's very interesting. How do you factor that into you into your traffic or revenue prediction models? Do you just separate the two? Do you kind of try to weave them in? Do you give like a, a bigger weight to soft conversions? Like, what, what is your your thinking and philosophy there? Yeah, so usually when in my own business model, because, you know, we work with companies, we're an external entity. And when I start out, I'll, I'll build a model based on one metric and one dollar amount tied to that metric. So if at the beginning you can say, hey, we know that we're driving this many leads and that's further down the funnel, then I'm not even going to model out the, the micro conversion. And instead, what we can do later on is we can use the micro conversion as a leading indicator. So if it's easier as a, you know, as an SEO and content or whatever org to just track that, then we say, Hey, we know that approximately whatever, 40% of these convert into MQLs. Therefore here's our goal for this. But when you're trying to size out the business opportunity, I think CEOs would be very right to sort of push back on, eh, like you're trying to sell me on this sort of bigger investment with a big ROI. And we're talking about people hitting click on a download. So I think it's about at first trying to really boil down to what's the value of this. And then the micro conversion is more of an internal team metric to make sure you're moving in the right direction. But a board doesn't want to hear about your micro conversions. Like they don't care about that if we're being real. Sure. Boards care about dollars. I'm, I'm also curious about your tools. Like what do you use to forecast and project? Is it Excel? Is it um, another tool or maybe a combination of the two? What, what does your tool stack look like? Yeah, right now it's, a, it's basically uh, Google Sheets and then using some predetermined templates where we look at a ratio of kind of Ahrefs traffic to similar web. So for example, I, I think Ahrefs traffic estimates can be like directionally relevant within a vertical. But the number, the absolute numbers are so far off. So when I hear people saying things like, oh, Ahrefs says this page only gets 2,000 visits. I'm like, oh, like you've never actually looked at the, the comparison between these. So I find that similar web, the actuals are a lot closer to reality. So I'll develop a proportion between the Ahrefs, which can give you a good segment level sort of uh, relative metric, and then use similar web to sort of say, okay, we think that Ahrefs is estimating by underestimating by 3x to apply that multiple to there. And then I just have some templates in Google spreadsheets, but the better right answer is that we're developing some tools internally and we kind of want to remove a lot of the manual work there. So hopefully next time I talk to you, we've uh, extricated Google Sheets from that process, but we're all stuck with Google Sheets for more than we'd like to be doing. It is what it is. It is what it is. Spreadsheets still win after what, 20, yeah. 30 years since their existence is still <laughs> nothing beats a good spreadsheet. But you also mentioned how you work with clients and, and I think one very interesting 
point to make is the difference between in-house and freelance, not in general, but more in terms of projecting traffic and managing expectations. At the end of the day, you have to do it on both sides, but talk to me a little bit about the difference of forecasting traffic and revenue in-house versus for when you're on the agency side. So I think I, I would actually start by answering the inverse of your question, which is where are they not different? So I think in a lot of ways, they should be pretty similar. And some of the differences have to do with the sort of internal mindset and culture around it. So sometimes, and, and it can be good or bad either way. So I've seen many scenarios where people kind of, they hire an SEO person and then they don't really care what they're doing. They just sort of say, oh, they sort of view SEO as, oh, like we're getting this paid traffic over here. And then the SEO traffic, even if it's not growing, the ROI looks similar. So even if we're totally stagnant, that's fine. And then there's not really any pressure to grow and there's not much forecasting. And then on the other side, the similar thing can happen when you hire an agency. But ultimately, it would be good if the difference between those things was shrunk. Because if you're going to sort of build up an in-house team versus hiring an external agency, I actually don't see what the, what the difference is when you really boil it down. Because it's ultimately, what does all of this cost us? what is the ROI there? And I think the, the big difference is when you're coming in as an external agency, you can kind of promise the world to people and not talk about resources and requirements and say, oh, here's all my spreadsheets with forecasts. And then you get hired, you tell people to do stuff, they don't do it. And then you say, oh, like this company sucks. They didn't do what I said. And then the company is pissed off. And internally, you're sort of forced to build deeper relationships and, and sort of fight for those resources. And a lot of the time when teams are built, they sort of say, okay, what do we need from the ground up? Let's do that. But then some of the time you come in and then you sort of have to go for that along the way versus when you're external, you kind of have to do it all up front because people don't want to hear after the fact, oh, by the way, the SEO people said we need to spend 30000 more on content when you really should have factored that into the total upfront cost. So that's what I do. I try to be, if anything, scare people off, to be honest, and say, hey, like, you need to do, we need to produce all this content. You need these resources for the website. If you actually want to build a buzz around this, here's the kind of community stuff you need to do. That's what success looks like here. And you find that people that are on board for that are generally in a good fit to sort of ride the SEO wave and people that aren't probably want to stick to more transactional channels. What have you found to be the most important thing that clients care about um, as an agency or, or a freelancer? Uh, how, how do you, what, what do you know they're all fishing for? It's probably going to be some, some type of like dollar revenue metric, but how do you make a compelling case, especially when, for example, you talk to a prospect who might become a client and they ask you, what can we expect? How do you structure these conversations? Well, yeah, of course, everything boils down to what money are we getting back from this, what the ROI is. But from doing consulting, one thing I've learned is that everything is about peace of mind. Everybody wants dollars, but ultimately people want to know that they just don't want to have to worry about this. And I consider us to be a premium option. And I'm not comparing myself to other things people could get in terms of, hey, like everybody can do sort of an audit or, you know, say we're going to write content or do something else. The way I structure my whole business model is that we sort of align on here are the things we need to do. Here's the division of labor between us. And then whatever we have to do within this, we own. And especially at first that ends up being 
a lot of work. And the reason why I don't like personally business models that are sort of hourly consulting over very short periods of time is that you end up thinking more about how much time people are spending on stuff versus, hey, like, here's the one year, two year, three year output for this investment. And when you look at it through that time horizon, and we say, hey, like, we're tying our reputation and everything we do on getting that, then it becomes less about, you know, oh, what are we doing with this little deliverable or that little one, you sort of align on, here's what we own. And we do everything we have to do to push it over the finish line. And I think what we try to give to people is, hey, like, you don't have to worry about sending an email and we're not going to give you big spreadsheets and tell you good luck with it. The, the pain in the ass thing is that you have to roll up your sleeves and work with people to get stuff over the finish line. And that's actually why going back to your question about in-house versus freelance, I think that's one of the things that to me is a misconception where I think to be a good external partner, you actually, a lot of the principles for in-house apply. Because if you just sit there and hand over spreadsheets, no one's going to do anything. We all know this. So you, even though you're an external entity, you still have to work with people, go to meetings and sort of embed yourself as an extension of the marketing team or whatever team to actually get stuff done. That's why I prefer retainers much more over the hourly model, because otherwise as a freelancer or a consultant or agency, you're much more concerned with how many hours can I spend on this? than yeah. what is the actual value that comes out at the end of the day, right? It's, it's the same principle as putting output over input, right? Like that's one of the cultural differences between Germany and the US is that in Germany, it's much more important how long you're in the office. In the US, it's much more important what you can get done at the end of the day. Nobody, quote unquote, cares as much, right? And it's, I think it's the same thing with the agency side, right? That model works much, much better if you are going for results than actually the, the, the hourly model. Um, but coming a little bit back to SEO forecasting, how do you use forecasts and reports to retain clients? And I want to lay out my thinking process here a little bit. So at the beginning of the year or at the beginning of the relationship, you come in with a forecast or a projection of the opportunity, potentially even of the dollars that can be attained. And then say you spend six months, 12 months with a client and then their contract is up for renewal. How do you then evaluate the forecast to potentially retain the client or to, uh, to kind of steer that conversation in a certain direction? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that if you get to month 12, and you're sort of looking at it from scratch and no one has any idea how they feel, then the writing is probably on the wall and it's probably not going to work out. So I even think about reporting where, and this is something I've had to learn the hard way, to be honest, where it's very easy for me in my head to see, oh, I know all the things we're doing and I see that things are going up. And even though I can attribute the correlation between specific things we've done and specific positive outcomes, like I would sort of be lazy in reporting and not put some of that stuff in there. And then after a little while, people would say, hey, we see things are going up, but like, what are you actually doing? And the sort of defensive part of me reacted negatively and was like, what do you mean? I'm the expert, things are going up. What, what other questions do you have here? But then I realized that that was a totally reasonable question and I was totally in the wrong. So one of the frameworks for our reporting now is sort of distinct, is reporting on cohorts. So let's say pages that we've published during certain months or quarters, showing those over time. So instead of people wondering, hey, like how do we know this isn't stuff we did two years ago or something, you can show, hey, here's the sort of trend line and here's how these different cohorts of our efforts are going up. And then another one of our workflows is optimizations that I think is actually really underutilized. People kind of push out content 
and and then as Jay-Z says, on to the next one. But a lot of the time when you view your cohorts and you go back and then you optimize some of those, we follow what we call optimization cohorts. So we can look at, for example, hey, the pages that we optimize that cohort in March, here's what that looks like over the following three months. So then anyway, when you end up getting to month 12 and you can sort of see, here's what our forecasts were on a quarterly basis. And here's what the output was. And you have every single month and quarterly report leading up to that of showing here's the way that our efforts have contributed to the bottom line. It's less sort of like a Steve Jobs iPhone unveiling thing out of nowhere and more sort of we've been building up to it and there's there's sort of an expectation of what we are or aren't getting. So instead of just measuring the total traffic, for example, or even the traffic per page type, um, you would then measure the traffic for either new pages that you created, new content you created, or pages that you optimized. How do you measure that? Like what, what does the, the operational part of that look like? So that, that's another thing where I look forward to my answer next time we chat, speaking about sort of the internal tooling we look for that. But right now it's just a janky process where we have a change log and we mark the URL and the date of an optimization. And then, you know, you have a call in the polls in the month, a call in the polls in the quarter, and then you can pivot that out every month to look at, hey, for based on our month pub date, based on our quarter pub date, based on our optimization pub date, what does that look like? And you just build pivot tables. And what that doesn't do though, is proactively give you insights. You, you sort of have to go fish it out and that's one of the, the things that we're working on internally that I'm excited about. Nice. Love that. Um, sticking to data a little bit, what in SEO can you prove with data and what can you not prove with data? Yes. So one concept, I don't know if you've read any Nassim Taleb. He's a, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Like, like many people, I wouldn't endorse his whole worldview, but uh He's got some, some of the most amazing philosophical and thought processes I've ever heard. And one of the concepts, and I think it was the black swan that changed the way I think about things is evidence of absence is not equivalent to absence of evidence or no, the opposite. Yeah, absence of evidence does not equal evidence of absence. So I think a great example of this in one way is if all you ever do is base everything you do on search volume, there's an underlying assumption that search volume is perfect, which spoiler alert, it's not. So I know for a fact, with a couple of companies I've worked with that around COVID-19, uh, because search volume trails behind real life, if you looked at what's the search volume of e-commerce COVID-19, it was zero, but you can make a hypothesis that, hey, does it make sense that people might be searching this? And that search term with zero volume was driving tens of thousands of visits to multiple pages and sites. I know that for a fact. So. Again, it means that when you look up something in their search volume, it tells you people are looking for it, but not seeing, or if you look up something and there's no data for it, like in a tool like Ahrefs, which is great, but highly imperfect, it doesn't mean that no one is looking for that. And I find some of the best high converting opportunities to be with keywords that people going through a very traditional process with arbitrary rules, like, oh, I never write anything if the keyword doesn't have a thousand searches, which is a completely made up rule. Like, okay, cool. Well, I'll go ahead and what I, a client we're working with now, the top keyword had a search volume of 50, according to something. I don't even remember what tool. And we just looked at it and there weren't great responses. And we thought it corresponded well to the client's product. 
and we publish it. And now that the keyword that has 50 searches, I think that page gets like 600 visits a month and is driving like solid conversions. And if all you did was follow some arbitrary rule about keyword search volume, we never would have published that content. It is great timing because I just wrote an article about exactly the fallacies of search volume. And there really? are so many. Yeah. And, and one of the biggest issues that I've seen is that exactly as you mentioned, like you write content based on a single keyword, but then that page that you create ranks for many keywords, sometimes a thousand keywords. And so the, the way that we forecast traffic based on a single keyword is fundamentally flawed. You, you just have to open search console, filter by a page, and then look at all the keywords that get impressions and clicks. And then you have the, the actual sum of the potential search volume. And then you also remember that even in that method, Search Console is like a fraction of a fraction. You're not getting everything from Google. So it's a reminder that SEO is a combination of, it's a process of combining a bunch of imperfect data sources. Like you have your sample GA data, you have your sample GSC data, you have your third-party data that's great for competitive insights, but it's highly flawed. And it's about putting all this together and coming up with a, a, coming up with a hypothesis. And I think people who do SEO not thinking in terms of hypotheses and confidence intervals is a flaw instead of saying, oh, this caused this or that will happen or that won't happen, which in an opaque world of a search engine as complex of Google is kind of ridiculous. 100%. To me, that awareness was probably a moment that changed my thinking about SEO the most when I realized exactly that. So how does that how has that impacted the way that you think about SEO? You, you talked about uh, confidence intervals and hypotheses and just, I would interpret that as just like being very humble about your recommendations in general, but how do you, you know, think that SEOs should carry themselves given that all of our data is pretty much very imperfect? Yeah, so I think an example that jumps out to me is that I'm very glad that the concept of search intent has become a regular part of the, the SEO lexicon. So instead of people talking about keywords, people now talk about search intent more. However, there's a false equivocacy where people search a keyword and they look at the search results and then they say, oh, based on my interpretation, interpretation of these results, the intent is we need a landing page. And to me, there's a, that's a case of absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, where we've, I've actually worked with a couple of companies where we saw that the results were dominated by a certain type of page, but we just had a fundamental hypothesis that the full intent wasn't being served. So if you just look at everything that's ranking for a keyword, you can of course say with a higher confidence, yes, the intent steers towards this. And then with a lower confidence, I could say, I think if we publish a different type of content, it could rank, but it doesn't mean that it absolutely will or it absolutely won't. Like uh, an example is with Hotjar, a company I've worked with for a while, all of, most of the top results for the keyword website analysis were these tools like Neil Patel's tool, other tools. And based on other qualitative inputs and paid data, we thought, we think that there's actually a broader intent that isn't getting served here. So we put together a page type that was fundamentally different than everything else. And now that drives more traffic and conversions than almost everything else. And it stands alone on the search results page. And I can pretend to be a genius for doing that, but really we just made a hypothesis and it happened to pan out. I've made other hypotheses that didn't pan out, but I think the key is to challenge the sort of what everybody else is doing and sometimes be willing to say, I think that everything that's out there doesn't prove that something else couldn't work. How do you formulate 
these hypotheses and how do you get buy-in for them or to execute on them? Yeah. So I think the first thing is you have to develop credibility. So tactically speaking, I wouldn't go in from day one and go for a home run that I'm not sure about. That's why in our own model, what we do is we go in, we look for low-hanging fruit pages that are kind of almost on accident, match an intent, but the title tags off, maybe they're missing a couple of key little questions there. Um, like we worked with a company starting in September that I think we saw like a 40% increase in traffic after September. And it just because they'd published a bunch of content that wasn't super well optimized. So we went in and saw immediate results. So after you do that, then when you go ahead and say, hey, we think that this might work. And even if, I think that the other key is that if you say, okay, even if we're not able to rank for this component of the traffic, we'll at least capture this component of the traffic. And once you fundamentally shift someone's thinking from like experts have to say what will or won't work in a certain time frame within 100%, you can, you can frame things as, hey, here's what we've done that's worked. If this works here, it's going to have a huge result. And if not, we think that this effort is worth a lower return. So we think that it's worth it. Nice. And then how do you, um, I mean, given that a lot of our data is imperfect, how do you, how do you sell that to clients? How do you get them excited? I mean, we talked a little bit about a, a, even if you don't get the, the full piece of the cake, at least you get some piece of the cake. Like what does that look like in terms of, um, how do you how do you communicate that to the client? Like, do you have a a big spreadsheet where you separate some of the possible traffic out? Is it more like a narrative that you send over? Is it a presentation? Like, what does that look like in the moment? Yeah, so it's some weird mix of all the above. Where, like as we mentioned, everything lives or dies by spreadsheet. So I have a spreadsheet, and then I'll usually talk through it, and then actually force myself to write up a document that summarizes it. And again, in terms of getting buy-in, it's I like to sort of stagger my bets across different things. So I'm doing Q1 planning with a couple of companies now, and I'll sort of go with, here's this higher impact, higher confidence opportunity. Here's a higher confidence, sort of smaller volume opportunity. And here's the weird thing that we're, we're also making a hypothesis about other channels. Like for example, you can make a hypothesis about digital PR and say, hey, we think that th there's not a ton of search volume associated with this, but we think that if we can you know, ladder up in terms of digital PR and get some people to bite on it, we'll be able to generate more brand search volume, which will help us across the board. So, and then when you tie it into the big picture, you're not telling people in a vacuum, hey, do you wanna do this weird thing that may or might not work? It's here's all of these things. Collectively, they're going to drive at minimum this and you view the kind of lower confidence activity as more of a, if this works out and it's less, we're happy with the cumulative result of everything, but this is the cherry on top. Talk to me a bit about Q1 planning. How do you think about planning? How do you go about it? Yeah, so what I like to do is sort of going into a year, look at what are all of our sort of underlying goals and things that we're working towards and then revisit those on a quarterly basis. But then also every quarter challenge myself to sort of look at everything from scratch and say, hey, is there anything we're totally missing here? So one thing was we'll do is we'll talk to clients and ask them a couple of questions, like even in the form of a survey to say, like, what are your business, what is your business focus for the quarter moving forward? And what have you learned as a business? And I think a gap that many people 
people who work in SEO and content or in organic miss is taking insights from other aspects of the business, whether it's sales, product marketing, research, whatever. So a lot of the time there's people working on these things and learning and it gets incorporated into, you know, sales collateral and that kind of thing. But those learnings don't make their way to SEO. And similarly, if you work with an external agency, it's that much more likely that they're not going to get critical kind of business context. So having a dialogue with a survey and, you know, within a couple of meetings with a client and then looking at, okay, if we look at our goals here, which are increase our visibility across this new topic, something that's new to the business. And then here are these things that we know drive conversions that there's room to improve there. And then maybe there's another objective. Maybe it's, we know that to rank for these other things, we need to acquire links or do something else. Then we can put together a plan where we align every project to the objective and you've already aligned your objectives to the bottom line and what's, what that's gonna look like over the next year or so. Nice, I think that's a, a really great wrap up for this uh, conversation about SEO forecasting, data, expert fallacy and so on. But I don't wanna end the conversation without going through three rapid fire questions if you're up for it. I'm up for it. Let's do this, cool. First question, um, what is something weird about you? Um, uh, I have brought my cat, Benjamin, with me from Arizona to California, from California to Thailand, and from Thailand to Spain. So I feel like that pretty well qualifies as weird. So Benjamin has seen more of the world than most people is what you're saying. Yeah, definitely than most Americans like myself. <laughs> <laughs> most traveled cat in the world. Uh, number two, what have you changed your mind about recently, say like in the last, last six or 12 months? Hmm. What have I changed my mind about recently? Um, I think even some of the thoughts around keyword intent that we were discussing about before, where I used to have a little bit more of a rigid mindset where you say, Hey, here's the intent for this. We have to create this page. And as I've experimented more and tried different things, I've adopted more of an open mindset and that sort of hypothesis framework. So sorry to be redundant there, but that's what's, that's what comes to mind. That's totally fair. And the last question, what would you change in the world if you had a magic wand? Um, I think I would give everyone more empathy. And that's sort of across the board, whether you, know, you look at the political climate in the US and people not understanding each other, you look at different disciplines in marketing and people not really trying to understand it, like we're, we're SEO people. We always get annoyed when people don't accept our view of the world, but then it's also probably easy for us to misunderstand other channels. So just taking the time to listen and empathize. And I put myself at the front of that list of people who need to improve. Amazing. Perfect wrap up. Uh, Nigel, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find and follow you? Yep. Um, so I would say my LinkedIn. And if you want to reach out, hit me up through marketingog.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. This was a wonderful conversation and I'm looking forward to the next one. Yep. I, I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Kevin. Three, two, one.